It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Kubrick's Universe. I, Jason Furlong, will be here to guide you through this episode, and Mr. Stephen Rigg is manning the controls. So, design, culture, film, music, and art have always been at the heart of what Paula Benson does in both her business and her personal life. She is the founder and editor of the website Film and Furniture, the online resource which identifies and offers fascinating facts about the furniture and decor we see in our favorite films. The site attracts a worldwide audience and has grown to become the definitive place to learn about and source furniture and decor from many iconic films. Paula also co-founded the London-based design and branding agency Form, where for three decades they have created award-winning strategic and visual branding and graphic design for clients. She frequently gives talks on design around the world. Now, Stephen first met Paula at the BFI back in 2019 during a Kubrick retrospective season, and now we present to you an insight into the locations and set design of A Clockwork Orange as we continue to celebrate the 50th anniversary of this awesome film. Thanks so much for being with us on Kubrick's Universe, Paula. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. I want to get straight into a series of questions we have for you. Firstly, about uh, your background in design. And if you could tell our listeners about your website, filmandfurniture.com. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, going back to the early 90s, I co-founded the design and branding studio Form with my partner, in life and business, Paul West. And our background's mainly in uh, design for music. So we are art directing and designing for bands like uh, Depeche Mode and Everything But The Girl, Elbow, um, many, many, many bands. Um, And throughout the 90s, I think we must have done most of the big pop bands at the time. So that involved kind of, you know, coming up with concepts for the whole visual look and feel, you know, art directing photo shoots, working with some really fantastic and interesting photographers like Rankin and Mick Rock and um, Mm. great stylists and putting together the whole kind of look and feel of an album campaign. Um, And I guess, you know, we've always been interested in the visual hook. Um, And later we kind of took that design um, company into strategy and, you know, branding is often seen by a dirty word as some, but really it's coming up with the whole kind of, you know, the communications, the look and feel, the words, um, whether that was for fashion and we did a lot of live events and we still do. Um, Forms very much, um, still very much going and we rebranded Abbey Road Studios a few years ago. So we've had some really fantastic projects, festivals. Um, and I've always been interested in film and I've always been interested in interior design and those sort of references have always fed into our work at Form. Uh, but film and furniture was a sideline that I set up uh, a few years ago, um, although it has definitely taken over my life. Um, so like I say, I've always been interested in visual hooks and, you know, symbols and iconic visuals that stick in people's brains. And and it all kind of kicked off with film and furniture when I revisited The Shining about seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the Overlook Hotel um, and, you know, the hexagonal carpet where Danny's cycling around on the on his tricycle around the corridors of the Overlook Hotel. And I was kind of studying the carpet and I was thinking, God, that's become so iconic. It's almost synonymous with the film. It's almost like a logo for the film. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's been referenced and parodied in many other films and many forms of popular culture. I mean, it crops up in things like Toy Story and Minions and... Um, it's a homage to it in the science fiction movie Passengers, and it appears on yep. so many um, kinds of merchandise. But I wanted to know who designed 
the carpet and was it designed specifically for the film and knowing that Kubrick is obviously so fastidious in his choice of objects and hidden mm-hmm. messages whether he meant it or not or whether <laughs> we mm-hmm. would drive ourselves nuts looking for these hidden meanings whether they're there or not yes um, but no one had really dis- discussed you know who designed the carpet so because I'm from a design background I was like you know I really wanted to look into it. And to cut a really long story short, I discovered that it was designed by a very legendary, well-renowned um, British uh, interior designer called David Hicks. So I wrote an article discussing this carpet, why it was chosen, why um, you know why, why it's important to the scene. And um, you know, fast forward a few you know a few years later, it kind of went a bit viral. It's been this article's been read by you know hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, and now we have um, the official license to reproduce that carpet to the public. So uh, we sell the carpet to hotels and private individuals around the world. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how film and furniture started. But generally, it's about production design and set decoration, um, the details of furniture and, and decor in a film. So if you see a really interesting carpet or wallpaper or chair or painting on the wall, then we'll talk about, you know, what it is, why it was chosen, the kind of hidden narrative it tells us about the characters, and then, yeah, where you can buy it for yourself. Um, and, I mean, I, I'm obsessed with these details. Um, I always tell people never to invite me to the cinema because I'll just be kind of interrupting all the time, pointing out different bits of furniture. But, um, yeah. It's, and it, you it, probably it, enter the theatre judging the seats already, the chairs. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I'm very, very sensitive to um, kind of the look and feel of interior design. But um, yeah. So and then I literally lose the plot when I'm watching a film. But um, yeah. So film and furniture, it's not just me. Um, you know, there are other writers and developers and designers. And my partner, Paul, gets involved a lot. But um, yeah, slightly taken over my life. But yeah, it's grown. I'm curious, you mentioned filmandfurniture.com and you have written some great pieces about the design aspects of so many films on your website so what brought you to a clockwork orange initially well i think a clockwork orange is one of those films that the visuals have always been embedded in my mind and i was trying to remember when i saw it for the first time and i can't but you know even though it was banned for so many years i think the visuals were still out there you know they were still um you know very much available um but I do remember going to see um see it on the big screen um in Brighton actually back in about 2000 so I think that must have been one of the first screenings after the ban was released after Kubrick's death um but it was always the film sets that stuck in my mind but it's also you know it's so disturbing isn't it it's you know it's Mm. about youth gangs and objectification of women and a very depressing view on the future and yet these visuals are so kind of haunting and quite visceral really so yeah I went down a clockwork orange rabbit hole um as I often do and published a piece about um a clockwork orange some key scenes and I made the mistake actually of realizing that I didn't feel finished when I'd researched and written it so I called it part one. And then, of course, I got inundated with people asking when part two was coming. So the pressure was building to kind (laughs) of investigate a few more scenes, which I set myself a task. I had to do it before the 50th anniversary of the UK release. So that was published back in January of this year, 2022. Um, So, yeah, I just think it's so much part of kind of culture, isn't it, really, this movie that, I can't really remember when I first saw it, but it's always sort of been there. What are your uh, different takes, if you will, between uh, your first impressions and then how you uh, came to the impressions you have now vis-a-vis, or shall I say, by way of your examination of the design and furniture within The Clockwork Orange? Yeah, well, it's funny when you're analysing things, isn't it? You become slightly dissociated from it. And I realised, you know, the more I watch it, that I have become desensitised. You know, obviously, there's so many things in the movie that are quite shocking. And, um, you know, even something that seems so innocent now of seeing Alex, you know, 
taking a piss in his parents' bathroom. I expect that was even shocking when it came out at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, once you've analysed things so much, I think you you kind of you kind of stop being shocked by it or you, you stop kind of... So I, I went back and I revisited and pretended I'd never seen it again. And I was trying to work out why... You know, especially the kind of the objectification and the rape, the rape scenes and all those things are so flipping horrific. That I wanted to like scare mm. myself again by watching it. Um, and yeah, once you kind of take away the analysis and just kind of get deep into the story, it, it still is very bleak, isn't it, really? Mm. Indeed. Now, the production designer, of course, on A Clockwork Orange was John Barry, not the film composer, of course, but... We're curious what you can tell us about him and his experience prior to Clockwork. Yeah, well, I don't know a lot about him, but um, what I do know is that he um, started his uh, film career with um, the epic Elizabeth Taylor film Cleopatra um, as a draftsman. Um, I think that was his first entrance into the world of film in 1963. Um, And then... Yeah, I think he he was a production designer for uh, Kelly's Heroes, the Clint Eastwood movie um, in early 70s. And then obviously went on to do Star Wars and, um, you know, Superman, the movie. So uh, Mm -hmm. blockbuster production designers. And then he was supposed to be um, working with Kubrick on Napoleon. Of course, that was never realised. But then they got to work together after Kubrick invited him back to do Clockwork Orange. Hmm. What information can you share about like an overview regarding where the Clockwork Orange was shot? Seems you know a bit about this. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a fan girl, really. So um, (laughs) I kind of, um, you know, I'm no expert, but I do a lot of reading and a lot of research and go down many rabbit holes. So, um, you know, as most people know, Kubrick doesn't like didn't like traveling too far. So nearly all of A Clockwork Orange was filmed within an hour or two of his home in Elstree in Hertfordshire. Um, and most of the, most of the, um, most of it was shot in real houses, which doesn't really happen so much these days. Um, and I think maybe two or three of the sets were built in a, you know, in a film studio. Um, and I think, you know, there was, probably something of Kubrick wanting to prove that he could make a film that wasn't quite as extravagant or big budget as 2001 A Space Odyssey, which obviously he'd made previously. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like Home, Mr. and Mrs. Alexander, the writer's house is um, the exterior of that was shot in Shipton under Winchwood in Oxfordshire. And the interior is in um, Skybreak in Hertfordshire again. Um, so that's the house that we first, where Mr. and Mrs. Alexander, the writers, tapping mm-hmm. away his typewriter and all hell lets loose. And mm-hmm. then Alex's parents' flat was in um, the, near the uh, the Tavy Bridge area of Thames Mead, um, and the interior um, at Boreham Wood, uh, uh, a tower block called Canterbury House, um, and then the amazing record shop, of course, was um, Chelsea Drugstore in Kings Road. In Chelsea, so all pretty much within an hour or two of Kubrick's home, um, which I'm sure made life much easier and more pleasant. Indeed, it does seem he preferred to spend far more time at home with his uh, his wife, his daughters, and uh, their dogs and cats than uh, on set, if you will. Um, so, how much of these locations and or the set design? do you feel helped tell a Kubrick story? Can you give us any examples that stick in your mind specifically? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, film sets can tell so many stories about the characters and what's going on and how we feel. Um, You know, there's so many hidden messages, conscious or subconscious, but I think the the film sets of um, A Clockwork Orange, they're so hyper-stylized. They're really exaggerated, uh, quite lurid in places, very exuberant. And they tell, you know, a parallel story as well as conveying messages about what the characters, their inner worlds. Mm. Um, and they're recognisable enough um, for us to know that this is set in the near future. Um, but we know it's not hundreds of years away. It's not like a sci-fi. 
So it were very grounded in the world that the characters are in, which I think makes it even the more shocking, really, because it feels like a future that is very much around the corner. Um, um, and for, you know, when it was released 1971, 72, um, it feels like that was a reimagining of what the present could be, um, you know, with violence and weirdness and political nonsense. Um, and I think we can say that we're very much there. Um, but it also incorporates some, you know, some amazing space age futuristic design, which was very um, kind of on trend or forward thinking at the time. So like, you know, Alex's parents' flat is so brash and mm-hmm. unsettling. Mm. Um, and then the writer's house home is very modernist and very sophisticated and perhaps a little pompous. Um mm. And then the Corova Milk Bar, of course, is very bizarre and dark and all those sexual sculptures of the women. Um, And Catwoman's House has so many, you know, provocative sexual art on the wall. And when I was analysing it again the other day, actually, I realised that there are so many objects in it that are protruding, (laughs) you know, coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of in your, you know, in your face. Um, there's mm-hmm. lots and lots of objects, even things I hadn't noticed before, like every light bulb or every in the corner of every room is something kind of jutting out at you. Um, mm. You know, even Alex's kind of bedspread with those kind of like little peaks. You know, everything is slightly spiky or bulbous. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I think Kubrick has placed you know those characters in those surroundings, which also echo their inner world. Um, something he was obviously a genius at. Um, and it's an, all all of it adds up to be an assault on the senses and it creates that sort of feeling of unease and unsettling atmosphere. And it just keeps us slightly unhinged all the way through, I think. Hmm, okay, so let's move through some of the various scenes in the film that are particularly striking in terms of their look and feel. Starting with the Corova Milk Bar. It's the famous opening scene where we are first introduced to the main character, Alex. There was me. That is Alex and my three droogs. That is Pete, Georgie and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our razoo dogs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet or Sintamesk or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. The opening scene, wow. Um, that close-up of Alex and his bowler hat and his famous eyelash and that menacing stare. And then, you know, immediately pulling out to see the Corova milk bar. Um, brash and very dark, exciting and sort of very highly charged atmosphere. Um, I think millions of bars and clubs around the world have emulated that look, either consciously or subconsciously. I mean, I've been from bars in Amsterdam to clubs in Tokyo that I think could have been um, influenced by the Corova milk bar, but it's windowless. So I think immediately you feel a bit sort of stifled and then it's Mm -hmm. all black and white. They're very, very strong cast apart from the only color, which is the wigs of the female sculptures, their wigs of their pubic, the only color in the whole scene. And then, you know, we see the droogs, sitting in a row there drinking the um, Maloco Plus. So, and then you have um, the sculptures um, of the of the naked women in their high gloss white. Um, and I, I know that John Barry had seen a sculpture exhibition of female figures uh, displayed as furniture. And we now know this to be an exhibition of Alan Jones, uh, the British artist, who had been playing around with this idea of uh, figures as sculptures and his first sort of erotic chair sculpture um, had been exhibited around 1969, 1970. So that included one particular piece called Hat Stand, Table and Chair. And that kind of really gained him quite international um, kind of status as a, um, you know, as quite an erotic pop artist. But Alan Jones turned down Kubrick um, when he was asked to create sculptures for the Crover Milk Bar. Because he was a famous director that I would do it for the credit, that if I got a film credit, it would, um, 
you know, I, it, it, it would be to my benefit. Uh, and I said to him that, uh, but, you know, I'm not a, a set designer. I said, uh, that's not my world. Uh, I said, if you can get me an exhibition at the Louvre, I will do it for nothing. I think he just said no, but if you want to copy it, then do, which I find really extraordinary. So they did. Um, so they copied uh, the the sculpture. Well, Liz Moore in the art department um, recreated uh, similar figures um, of the women as kind of you know their their breasts actually de delivering the um, mm -hmm. plus drink and um, yeah, literally putting their feet up on them. And um, I, you see, this is where I'm personally really kind of troubled is that I love Alan Jones but but his kind of you know objectification women sort of really does bug me a bit but I think I've reconciled it mm. um is mm. that you know he's just kind of pushing boundaries and that's why they the, you know the, these were included in um the, the Corova milk bar and I just think it's brilliant as the opening scene is immediately like whoa mm -hmm. um, and then we're headlong into it but um as a, anecdotally what what I also think that drew me to a clockwork orange is and I didn't realize this till years later that my first boss when I I went to St Martin's Art College and my first job was at um, a design studio and my first boss was Deirdre Morrow who is Alan Jones's uh, wife and she was his muse for many many for many of those those figures and she always had a really distinctive bob with a very short um straight fringe and you know very distinctive bob and now when I look at Alan Jones where all I all I see is my ex-boss which is a bit strange um <laughs> but yeah maybe subconsciously that's why I was drawn to the the movie again um but yeah I, I love I love those sculptures and I love his painting but it's interesting that he turned down working on the film we fill it around for a while with other travelers of the night playing hogs of the road then we headed west. What we were after now was the old surprise visit. That was a real kick, and good for laughs and lashings of the old ultra-violent. Now, to get to a question regarding home, of course, Mr. and Mrs. Alexander's house. Um, that scene was filmed at two real locations, the exterior and the interior. And again, it's just striking in its visual design. Here we have this married couple we see attacked in their own home by the invading droogs. But you have these design elements like the Japanese garden, um, the typewriter, space age furniture almost, um, the pod, a uh, little bit of a callback perhaps. And then we have Roger Dean's involvement and, and paintings from Christiana. What can you share with us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think subconsciously this uh, scene must have really influenced my love of interior design. I mean, it's just so modernist and so incredible. So yeah, the, we fir we first see the house when you know the drugs have been on their in, in their car chase and they uh, creep across the Japanese raked garden at night, um, and the exterior is actually called the exterior of the house is, is actually uh, the house is called the Japanese Garden. And that's in Chipton under Winchwood in Oxfordshire, and was designed by Paul. Litchfield um, in the early 60s and the interior um, is a different place altogether that was filmed in Skybreak um, so this has become quite an iconic home now uh, a real real house uh, designed in 1965-66 by a team of architects called Team 4 and I think within those four walls of this you know outstanding architectural space where Alex and his droogs reap havoc and you know they obviously attack and paralyze uh, Mr Alexander played by Patrick McGee and they rape his wife um, cutting her red tight kind of uh, jumpsuit off and yeah so I think it's an interesting contrast between a very high-end minimalistic sophisticated space and the droogs violence and sort of disregard and I think it's that contrast again that really kind of hits home and, and that's this kind of really beautiful um you know a kind of modern castle if you like and is kind of really penetrated by the droogs and uh, where they reap havoc but Mr Alexander is obviously writing on his typewriter when the doorbell first goes um and he's writing on an IBM typewriter there 
And just for any uh, major furniture geeks out there, he's sitting on a Saarinen, Aero Saarinen executive conference chair, which is still available. Um, and it's, yeah, it's flanked by these bookcases with many, many books. Um, and if you look really carefully on one of the shelves, you'll see an orange circular object, um, which uh, it's not revealed in the film, but I think in the book, which I haven't read, I must admit. Uh, it's Okay. <laughs> cut interview um no <laughs> sit, sitting on the shelf is a uh, this circular object uh orange object um and yes yeah, reveal it's in the book it's the writer is actually writing a clockwork orange um but i'm sure it's actually that object is a 1970s ice bucket because i've got one that looks nearly exactly the same really uh, yeah how um, cool i i don't know that i've ever noticed that Stephen, have have you Yes, I've noticed the orange. It's, it's very bowl shape, isn't it? It's very like a globe. Is that the yeah. object? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gosh, I'm got, embarrassed. Yeah, I've noticed that it's on the shelf. When you see the side shot, it's kind of to his right on the side bookshelves. But I let, yeah, I can imagine that being an ass bucket. Yeah, I can. Where the top had just come off and yeah. right, right, that's right. flat in the top of an orange kind of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I have gone around to um, taking stills and enlarging and enhancing Blade Runner style to see if it really. <laughs> oh, now you're now you're preaching an evangel. That is my movie. Now you're about to set off a rabbit hole. Yeah, no, <laughs> let's, I won't. Let's not go down that one. <laughs> I won't do it. I won't. I'd love to, I'll but I see you at the bottom of that one a bit. I'm quite often down that down there. Um, but yeah, so uh, Skybreak. Um, yeah, so beautiful open plan space divided by tiers, and those tiers are joined by the stairs um, and just an amazing array of uh, furniture. So on the first tier, uh, Mrs. Alexander um, at the bottom is dressed in red, and she's sitting in that pod thing with an open lid. And then on the second tier, there's a red and black low chair, which creates a sort of vague heart shape. And then on the wall to the side of that, there's a heart-shaped artwork on the wall. Um, so is home where the heart is? Um, I don't know mm. if you're familiar with Julie Cairns. She's one of my favourite Kubrick analysts. She just must spend so much of her time. But um, she came up with that theory, and I'm like, yes, you're absolutely right. But the retreat board at the front, designed by um, Roger and Martin Dean. So they worked in design and art and uh, fantasy and sci-fi books, architecture, kind of all-round design, art, polymaths. Um, and they created that pod at the front. And, oh, my God, my mind was blown away when I started to research this. It's one of those where I was kind of hopping around the room. So the concept of the of these pods um, were like they were almost like a dry flotation tank. So you could cut yourself off from the world. And they yeah. said, you know, years before the film came out, that, the, the, that this design was almost like brainwashing. So you could hide your, yourself inside um, and there'd be no sound and no light and then it disconnects you. I've got a quote here, if you don't mind me reading it. He, Martin Dean said, it has a soft fur interior to minimise touch. It disconnects you and that's a state in which you are more receptive to propaganda or self-determined indoctrina indoctrination via tape recorders, projectors, light effects mm. and so on. You could take your mind from a state of near sensory deprivation right through to sensory chaos. Like, bingo! That's almost wow. like synopsis for the film. Yeah. Just, wow. you know, that's a prop you see for one second in the movie and it's kind of like this is how deep these production designers and set decorators go with their choice of objects um so yeah it could almost be a description of um alex's treatment at the end um wow yeah that's that's deep <laughs> um, quite deep but also like roger dean um keep, crops up a lot in my life and again i realized that i mean you know, I've designed so many record sleeves uh, with my partner, Paul West, over the years. And um, in fact, I think part of the reason I got into graphic design was partly because of Roger Dean. I used to study the Asia album when I was a teenager. It was such an amazing kind of. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. Artwork. And I used to kind of copy it. So, um, yeah, obviously had a 
a lot of influence that I hadn't realized. But I love Skybreak. I love that scene, even though obviously it's mm-hmm. it's terrible what happens there. But as a piece of interior design, it's outstanding. It certainly is one of the first things I recall jumping out at me on my first viewing at, I don't know, the age of 14, 15, um, as, as was the record shop. Now, we have to touch upon that. Of course, in the record shop scene, we see Alex uh, browsing the shelves of a shopping market. And since you're uh, sharing your experience as an album cover designer, um, so... Perhaps he's actually browsing for records or maybe he's browsing, if you will, for his next victims. And he he picks up two young girls who are looking at records. Pardon me, ladies. Enjoying that, are you, my darling? Bit cold and pointless, isn't it, my lovely? What's happened to yours, my little sister? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you getting, Braddy? Goggly Go Go, Johnny Zhivago, The Heaven Seventeen? Hmm? What you got back home, little sister, to play your fuzzy warbles on? I bet you've got little, say, pitiful, portable picnic players. <laughs> Come with uncle and hear all proper. Hear angel trumpets and devil trombones. You are invited. You must have some strong opinions and knowledge, I should say, about the record shop interior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very familiar familiar with record stores. Um, I mean, obviously, I've just designed many record sleeves over the years um but it's my partner who's a little bit more obsessed with vinyl um than i am so wherever we go i'm often dragged into a, a record store uh but this one in a clockwork orange um which is actually the chelsea drugstore um i would love to have visited I really would i mean everything about the concept of the chelsea drugstore just it's just so amazing. I mean, what happened to creativity in retail? I've got no idea. Um, yeah, so amazing place on the corner of Royal Avenue um, and Kings Road in Chelsea. This incredible travertine and brushed steel building from the outside. Um, mm. A kind of 60s version um, of a kind of futuristic build. It's very playful um, and bold. And then inside, uh, where the scene for A Clockwork Orange record store was filmed, um, is the record store section of what essentially, I guess, was like a mini cool department store. So it had the record shop, the cafe, a chemist, newsstand and, you know, food outlets. And it was open 16 hours a day, which was, Mm. uh, I guess, quite unusual for those days. And many artists and bands hung out there. Um, and it must have been quite difficult to film inside there because, it, you know, when he sweeps around the camera, kind of does that track around the circle. And then he yeah. ends up in the middle where he goes to collect, um, where Alex goes to collect the records he pre-ordered. So it must have been quite tricky, especially with those reflective surfaces as well, because there's lots of mirror and lots of, um, you know, reflective metal surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so obviously the Chelsea Drugstore's referenced in the Rolling Stones track. You can't always get what you want. Um, right, right. Referenced in the Kinks. And I think um, the interior... Oh, what Kinks what kink song? It's what am in I- um, a track. It's called Did Ya? It says something about now the Chelsea Drugstore needs a fix. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh. I'm embarrassed. I'm a huge Kinks fan, and I am drawing a blank. I'm sorry. Go on. How cool. <laughs> I'm not going to try and sing it, that's for sure. Um, but I think well, I'm sorry? I'm not going to try and sing it to you. Oh. <laughs> it cut Stephen in with your track. Oh, did you ever think it wouldn't last forever? Did you ever think that it would get this bad? Did you ever think that everything would get so crazy? Now the Chelsea Um, <laughs> he's there he's always there <laughs> but I think um, the, the, interior, the interiors of the record store kind of served 
Kubrick's vision of the film being set in a near future. So it's recognisable, um, but certainly farther away than now, uh, with all those space age kind of mirrored surfaces um, that reflect all the records and the magazines in its midst. And I posted a picture of this on Instagram recently, and um, I ended up having a little chat with um, someone who said that they used to hang out there. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, tell me about, tell me more. And then as I was reading it, I was thinking, I know this name. Who? And I turned around to my partner, Paul, and I said, who's Marco Peroni? And he said, oh, he's a guitarist in Adam and the Ants. And he used to work with Susie and the Banshees. And um, okay. You know, Paul went off on one going, oh, God, yeah, he used to hang out with Malcolm McLaren at, at the sex shop, and he made an, he, I think he curated the uh, jukebox there, and then he he brought out that album called Sex a couple of years ago, which is amazing. Um, basically, his edit, Marco Peroni's edit of, um, of the tracks from the sex shop, which was obviously just down the road from the Chelsea drugstore. So yeah, that was interesting. And that's what I love about film and furniture is you end up having like amazing discussions with the most unlikely people who are equally interested in this stuff. But yeah, what a record shop. Where I lived was with my dad and mum in municipal flat block 18A, Linear North. To touch back upon uh, Alex's parents' flat uh, and his bedroom, of course, which we were talking about, little bit back um that home has all the hallmarks of you know bad taste as you would say and and also is is very memorable in its set design you know if i may say you know the garishness of it 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 works um and you must have spent some time examining that oh yes um yeah i mean it's like the epitome of postmodernist kitsch in all its glory um yeah so the exterior and in it and in the in the interior of a what the exterior is rather a, a brutalist kind of architecture almost yeah absolutely so that was um filmed at the Tavi bridge area of mm-hmm. of the thamesmead brutalist estate um and then the interior Again, somewhere completely different was on the top floor of Canterbury House Tower Block in Boreham Wood. Um, but I think the the interior it sort of reeks of Alex's middle-aged working class parents trying to keep up with trends in the fashion <laughs> as well. That's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but lacking any real taste. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, a real a real horror show. Um, but I love it. Yeah, so the lurid kind of gold wallpaper in the hall, that sparkly gold wallpaper with the um, J.H. Lynch prints um, everywhere. Um, and, you know, the bathroom with its, it's got really gaudy diamond-shaped orange-yellow and mirrored mm-hmm. wallpaper. Insanely beautiful. Um, and then the small kitchen, which is like, you know, again got metallic and orange and yellow in it with a a toy sunflower cheerily um, sitting on the table. The lounge is sort of a cacophony of all these lurid colours with a teal-coloured sofa and uh, bulbous, yeah, there we go again, the bulbous Mm. chrome-cladded walls kind of, you know, jutting out Mm. and Mm. making you feel a bit uneasy. Um, Yeah, there's certainly no respite for the senses. But then Alex's bedroom is kind of a bit... more sophisticated and I think this is where Alex is spelling out his individuality and his superiority you know that he um, obviously thinks he's above most people and most things so I think um, all those things in in his bedroom like the transcriptors hydraulic reference turntable that amazing piece of um, hi-fi kit that where he plays his Beethoven oh bliss bliss and heaven oh it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh it was like a bird of rarest spun heaven metal or like silvery wine flowing in a spaceship gravity all nonsense now as i slushed i knew such lovely pictures So that that was designed by David Gammon in the 60s. It won many awards 
very beautiful piece of kit, which, um, yeah, we sell these now, actually. The, the David Gammon's son um, has sort of started to remake these again uh, to order. The turntable. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So the original turntable, the ones that actually feature, the one that featured in the movie is a transcriptor's version. But um, yeah, so the original version, because um, David Gammon actually lent Kubrick this um, that specific turntable for the movie. So his son is making them again and we sell them through Film and Furniture. Um, so, cool. you know, so that's an amazing bit of kit. And then you've got, you know, like the Valentine typewriter, the red typewriter, which kind of shows the kind of literary and um, again, amazing piece of kit at the time. It's sort of the precursor to an iPad, I suppose, or an iBook because it's a portable typewriter, that bright red typewriter. So it's kind of showing mm-hmm. its sophistication. And then um, you have this sort of diorama that's created behind his bed, which... I'm sure you might have noticed this, but you know, there's the poster of the naked woman uh, with the open legs, which is mm-hmm. behind his bed. So that's by Cornelius McKink. And then you've got this sculpture to the side of his bed, which is four dancing Christs <laughs> um, right. on the bedside table. Um, so that's by Cornelius McKink's brother, Herman. It's almost like a row of droogs. I always think there's four of them four dancing Christs and uh, kind of very white, high, shiny yeah. porcelain. And then you've got this stick um, where he keeps his snake, where it's right. out. And from a certain angle, the stick looks like it's kind of like penetrating the woman's open leg. And then you've got Phallic, the right, right. Christ below. So it's like this biblical diorama of the temptation of the Garden of Eden and the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the fall of humankind. Yes. Uh, All so is you- missing is an apple. <laughs> yeah. Well, there must be one in there, actually. I need to go and have another look. Um, but yeah, all that kind of excess of um, sort of loud, erotic, um, obscene art and and the decor sort of, you know, it sort of suggests that we may become desensitized, I think. And I think we have. And to jump ahead, you know, in the film to the scene with the house of the cat lady, this is, of course, the final scene before Alex is caught by the police and so brings an end to his crime wave, if you will. Um, we touched upon that earlier, but please share your understanding of uh, what makes that scene so memorable in terms of the design and its furniture. Yeah, well, um, the room. Um, so Alex and his drugs sort of descend on what is a health farm. And it was a health farm at the time of filming. Um, run by, uh, in the film, run by the yoga-loving cat lady. So Alex lies his way in, and then she phones the police. Um, so the exterior is Shenley Lodge in Enfield. It's now a school, I believe. Um, and the entrance is outside is guarded by two stone sphinxes, Um and I was contacted by someone uh, not so long ago who has these two stone sphinxes. Um, just they, oh. they, bought, they bought them um, from some um, kind of antique store in South London. Um, and I've analysed them and I've overlaid the film stills of these sphinxes. I mean, maybe they were maybe they were moulds and maybe there were lots of them made, um, but they look pretty much identical to me. And they just literally wow. came in their garden for years and didn't realise. Um, but also the same exterior is um, is used in an episode of The Avengers. Um, and they're not oh, sphinx- okay. at that point. They are lions. So we know the sphinxes were dis- particularly chosen for A Clockwork Orange. Um, so yeah, inside and uh, Ms. Weathers in her green leotard and white tights practicing yoga in in that room full of bold uh, highly sexual art pieces again by Cornelius McKink Um, with the green painted ceiling and exercise equipment everywhere Um, and as she does her yoga she's surrounded by all those uh, crazy cats Um, but yeah those paintings are immediately kind of you know set us as as a sophisticated woman she's She's running a health farm. She's doing yoga, and yet she has all this provocative art. Um, mm. And then, and then the incredible, bizarre, shiny white kind of phallus sculpture, which is again by Herman McKink, who also created the Dancing Christs on Alex's bedroom 
um, bedside table. So, and I always assumed that that was made for the film. I mean, it's so perfect for the film. Um, right. And yet it turns out there was an addition of six. There were, um, there were being sold as art pieces. Um, and then some research I did recently would um, suggest that they were, they've, they've all, it also cropped up in other movies which seems very unlike Kubrick, so he's very protective of everything, but it was literally like a prop, um, hmm. available from a prop shop or an art, um, an art I'm place. curious, what, what, pardon the interruption, I'm, but I would hate to not ask what other films you know, uh, that giant phallic rocking machine, if you know, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that art piece, what, what else did that, where else did that turn up? So apparently it was in a Tinto brass movie, um dropout which i've not seen um mm. so apparently it appears in that also with some cornelius mckink they're obviously um the big artists of of the day um so yeah i've not seen it myself but apparently it, it they do crop up in there both the artwork and uh the rocking machine and then um i don't know if you saw this that they produced it in gold recently um no, no. So they reproduced it with the original cast um, with the heavy pendulum kind of rocking, jerking motion the same. Right, right, right. Um, and it sold uh, recently for £20,000. Yikes. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, it's such a, I can't believe that it was, um, I just assumed always that it had been made specifically for Clockwork Orange. And then obviously it becomes a um, used in the fight with Alex and uh, Cat Lady. I, I always kind of thought it was weird it was called Cat Lady, but that's her name in the credits, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I want to ask about your take on the Ludovico medical facility, of course, which is also very striking, both the exteriors and the interiors. And they convey what we see as the beginning of Alex's incarceration and his, his path out, if you will. What can you tell us about what you learned regarding Lodovico Medical Facility? Yeah, so this is where Alex goes to be cured, in theory, mm -hmm. of his evil ways. Um, and it was filmed at the Brunel University Lecture Theatre, um, a very fine example of um, brutalist architecture, mm -hmm. uh, which I must visit. Um, but it was designed by Richard Shepherd, Robson and Partners. And I believe that architectural practice is still going. They're called Shepherd Robson. But in the 50s and 60s, um, they pioneered the use of uh, concrete shell structures, um, as was um, quite prevalent at the time. But brutalism is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's often referred to as a style of architecture, but really mm -hmm. the true um, ideology behind brutalism um, is about use of materials. So it's about honesty, honesty with materials and hence the use of concrete, um, which comes from the name Breton Brut, which uh, translates uh, from the French as naked concrete. Um, so yeah, this incredible building where um, Alex gets taken and is subjected to uh, I was watching it again last night. I still can't believe they let him do that to his eyes in reality. It's just, it's got to be one of the most haunting images in film. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some love uh, the Brunel University for its brutalism and, and some hate it. But either way, I just think um, it's, uh, you know, it serves the scene so well as that kind of dominating, oppressive, um, that grey concrete backdrop. Um, where Alex suddenly becomes a little less dominant of his surroundings and the surroundings are dominating him. I'm curious what other Kubrick films you admire in terms of their production design, if there's any specifics that jump out to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, 2001 has got to be my personal favourite, um, mm -hmm. particularly for the space station uh, lobby of uh yeah space station five with the high white surfaces and then those red chairs dotted around uh which are the gin chairs by french designer oliver morgue which again we sell through film and furniture 
uh, yeah, I managed to track someone down who the original company that made them went bust in I think the seventies or eighties, um, and I know someone who bought all the all the stock. Um, so amazing chairs, very low slung, but I think um, again such an iconic scene. It's embedded in in my memory. Um, so I'd say yeah, two thousand and one is uh, right up there. Um, mm. As is The Shining for all the reasons that I mentioned. Um, yeah, that hexagon carpet is it literally rules my life. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's it's all over pop culture, as you were saying before. I mean, I was recently at uh, what technically can still be called a, a music shop, although they mostly traffic in things like uh, uh, comic books now and these Funko pop dolls. And they also sell music, whether it's vinyl or uh, gosh, cassette tapes are actually making a comeback with the young generation, which is yeah. bizarre to me. Um, and there were shining hexagonal carpet socks, uh, high top sneakers and on and on and on. <laughs> it's almost as though it doesn't need the branding of, you know, Warner by Warner brothers on it anywhere to say, this is from the shining. These are like you, everybody just knows. And me being, you know, getting close to being a geezer, I've got my eye cast over to these kids and they're just like, Oh guys, have you seen that? These are from the shine. We should get those. <laughs> and it's just like, wow. Okay. You know, we're handing off the torch to, uh, the kids who are discovering it for themselves for the first time. And yet, you know, we had, uh, let's say not much more than a copy of it on VHS to really get into it. Um, and so it's, it's completely understanding, as you say, that it would, you know, overtake your life. It, it did mine for a time until I started to see all its ubiquity uh in everything and then i was like okay all right there's so much else in kubrick that i need to focus on but it is a great entry point i think for a lot of people who become for lack of a better word hypnotized by kubrick yeah and i think on the one end you have like the socks and the iphone covers and all that uh-huh i i've got a client who is just putting the finishing touches on he's recreated the entire overlook hotel in the basement of his uh i don't know how big it is it must be huge but literally oh my. so I've, I've supplied all the officially licensed carpet of uh, for, for the the cinema the theater uh the 237 uh room carpet which we also produce for all the bedrooms he's recreated the green art deco bathroom and the red bathroom i mean this is how big it is but it, it's not in the slightest bit tacky it is so beautifully done the craft wow it's absolutely unbelievable so yeah that's on the other end of the scale when it comes to devotion to kubrick and the shining fascinating he probably started out going oh look at those socks <laughs> yeah, see what happens when you've got too much money right i think the only two items i have got with the carpet on them are socks and an iphone case so I'm, that, <laughs> I'm the classic uh, example that we're talking about there. <laughs> Guilty! <laughs> what do I have? I have, oh, I have uh, the mouse pad. Uh, these were gifted to me one Christmas sometime back. The hexagonal as a mouse pad and someone gave, oh yes, a bath mat uh, for when you get out the shower. Ooh. Um, so Paula... This has been wonderful. We can't thank you enough. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about what you have available at filmandfurniture.com, which Kubrick fans in particular might be interested in seeking out? Yeah, I mean, um, in our online store, which kind of works in two ways. So some of the items in there, we actually sell directly, like uh, the gin chairs, the gin sofas. Um, from 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, vintage originals, which have been recovered and restored. Um, that sent me on another rabbit hole, actually, whether they were really red or pink, because there's a real debate about um, whether the kind of remastered version of the film, they, they look a bit more pink than red, but in, in the... Um, anyway, we do them in both. Um, and, yeah, so uh, also, obviously, The Shining Carpet, which I've spoken about that we do, 
um, the Hicks hexagon rugs and mm. runners and wall-to-wall carpet, um, which we've um, furnished from hotels to offices to private homes. Uh, that keeps us very busy. And also the 237, the room 237 carpet we uh, released recently. But we're talking about really beautifully crafted, high-end, one, you know, 100% wool, really kind of beautifully made um so this isn't you know kind of like your cheap tacky kind of rug it's a it's a you know really well crafted uh item and then i mean and then also we we direct people where they can find um all sorts of um things from all sorts of movies uh and that we just sent you know we just tell you where to go and where we found it and we research um you know exactly where you can buy things like the glasses from Blade Runner that Deckard drinks out of. Oh wow! Yep. Uh, those. Is there a? Are those available on your website, or is there yes. a link? Yes. Uh, okay. Where to buy them? To you can buy them in in packs of singles or doubles. Uh, they are beautiful glasses. They're really um, really oh, heavyweight. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Really beautifully made. Nineteen seventies design. Still made by the original Italian company that 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 uh, designed them. That okay, made- I'm gonna have to get some. That's yeah, one of those. Yeah, they they are they are beautiful things, and then things like the um, the cutlery or the flatware from uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey, which was uh, Danish design by Arnie Jakobsen. Uh, we tell people where they can buy those, and they're beautiful, beautiful modernist objects as well. Um, yeah, or right right through to. Um, you know, mugs and posters um, through to, you know, amazing high-end sofas. So, yeah, it's it's all in the, in the store section. And then the, the feature section of the website goes quite deep into discussing, you know, analysing all the stuff we've been talking about today. How much time would you say you have to dedicate to uh, maintenance on your website, given the uh, amount of interest and... In, and of course, your uh, interest in keeping it current is this a kind of full time job thing for you now? You almost able uh, to manage other things as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is a, it is a, a it, it 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 it's very time consuming. Look after website um, because you know there's always you know something tech wise that needs attending to. Um, but it's the research and the writing that I really love. Um, and then we do quite a lot of brand partnerships as well with uh, with other brands who are kind of interested in our audience and uh, you know different collaborations and um, but yeah I mean it it we sell the carpets and that that takes up quite a bit of time um, because quite a lot of them are custom made different sizes different patterns different colorways all this sorts of thing um, so it is it is very time consuming but it's a, it's a, a real kind of passion so. I don't care if I if I'm up at two a.m. or one a.m. or Sunday afternoon, whatever it takes uh, to uh, fit it all in, because I love it. Hey, our deepest thanks to Paula for joining us on this episode. That was very enlightening and super cool of her. Now, if you want to read more about the set designs of other Kubrick films, as well as features on other films such as Blade Runner, then wiggle them fingers over to the keyboard and head over to filmandfurniture.com. Don't forget to check into the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, as well as Kubrick's Universe page on Facebook as well. And please, do take just a moment to rate and review our show via your own EVA pod player. This will help bring attention to our show for listeners who have not yet discovered us. Go on, scroll down through our episodes to the bottom, and click a rating, and write a review. What are you waiting for? Come on. Do it now. That's right. On our main show screen, just scroll to the bottom and... My God. It's full of five empty stars. Make your choice. Now write a review. That's it. Well done. And thanks. Our show was produced by Stephen Rigg. I'm Jason Furlong saying thanks for joining us in Kubrick's universe. More Clockwork Orange exclusives are on the way. 
So we'll see you next time in the stripy hole. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.